You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Have you ever made anything fly? Do you want to try it? witchcraft at a bar a few miles away from here. May I come in? Where is it? Hey folks, welcome back to The Projection Booth. This is the second in a series of episodes where I am covering movies from the South by Southwest 2021 Film Festival. Up first, Ellie Callahan's Witch Hunt, which is a film rich with metaphor. It's set in a world in which witchcraft is real and outlawed. As witches are women, it's about oppression as well as fear of the other. I had the pleasure of speaking to Ms. Callahan about Witch Hunt. You seem to have just an amazing background. I'm very curious how you got into filmmaking, because you've got, what, sound design, editing, just all of these different skills. How did that all happen for you? Yeah, I mean, I grew up loving film, and I also kind of came about in the era where, like, YouTube was starting. And so, I, you know, I just loved making little videos of my friends and putting them online, and people would watch them and get so happy. And I was like, I could do this as a job. I want to do that. And my parents were like, Oh no. <laughs> um, so I started really hard and I got into USC's film school and, you know, moved across the country and in film school, it was a lot of people that all wanted to be directors and that was kind of intimidating. So I, I stayed in the editorial like post-production world I studied sound design because it's kind of the most expensive thing I could play with at film school was the mixing board. You know, I was like, I'm going to be in so much debt. I might as well get my money source. So I, I want to play with all these, you know, they, people want to play with the cameras. And I was like, I want to mix. So I did that. And then I went into the studio system and I was a PA and all various aspects of post-production, like stereo conversion, editorial, sound, VFX, and through doing that, I got to work pretty closely with some big directors because, you know, it would just be, you know, when you're on set, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. But you know, when you're in editorial, it's just the director and a couple editors and then the PA, which was me. I started getting really antsy to tell my own stories. And so um, eventually I left and started pitching to do my own projects. How did Headcount come about? That kind of grew out of like just... I just wanted to tell some kind of story with a monster. I, I love monsters. <laughs> so um, my friends and I were out in Joshua Tree, and it was just the weirdest looking place to me. And I thought it was so scary because you could see everything, but also you just felt so alone. And so my friend Michael Nader, who's an amazing writer, and his and now he's directing his film, The Toll, is coming out soon. He um, and I sat down, we wrote headcount we just set it out there and then we you know spent a couple years pitching to different investors and put the money together and it came kind of came together as like a true indie film you know it's like everyone the set was like under 30 years old just like wanting to like make a feature you know tired of working in commercials and we all lived out there for a month and it was really fun really it's a really great place to you know make your first piece of art did that help open the door for witch hunt 
It definitely did because, you know, it was a, a genre film and I wanted to stay in the, in the horror space. Also just had counted such a small budget and it looked a lot bigger than it was. So that was, it's a good pitch as a director when you can stretch your, stretch your budget. <laughs> um, and so I, I wrote Witch Hunt because I wanted to do something with witches next and um, kind of the clout from Headcount allowed me to, you know, find funding for that. I mean, obviously, the term witch hunt has been abused for the last five years, let's say. <laughs> was your film kind of a reaction to the political atmosphere of the last few years? It definitely was. And I didn't set out to really say anything political. I just I wanted to uh, make a film about witches and I wanted it to be a realistic film about witches because I'd seen witchcraft in all forms. You know, um, I've seen it modernized, but like not really realistically. And I, I loved the, the series True Blood because it kind of handled vampires in a, in a way that I thought is very accurate. Like that's how we would react if a whole race of vampires came out and said that they were real. And so I was like, well, what would happen if witches did that? And what would happen if that happened today? And so as I was writing, it's just kind of like everything that was going on in the United States at the time just kind of bled into the script and it all kind of found an organic story. I wanted to tell a story that revolved around mostly women for a while, and this felt a pretty natural place to do that. Tell me about your cast, because uh, I recognized a lot of the faces in there. Yeah, I mean, they're an amazing cast. Gideon Adlon plays Claire, and she's a fantastic actress who just took the character and just made it her own. And I, I try to cast based on just like, you know, who knows the character more than I do. <laughs> So that they can just, you know, they, I, I, I give them room to play. I want them to, you know, make the role their own. Abigail is, was an amazing choice for Fiona. Um, and she connected with the character a lot because um, I chose to make all my witches redheads to kind of have a, like a physical representation of oppression too. Really connected about how, you know, when she was growing up, she would get bullied for having red hair. And my sister, it was the same way, who actually named the character after. So that was, you know, I felt really uh, good handing that character off to her. And then Elizabeth was a fantastic Martha. She's just so naturally kind and nurturing. And then Christian was an amazing villain. He just took it and ran with it. And it was just, you know just that kind of quiet terror that he would bring to every scene and that control that I intended to have with his character was like, he just kind of represented, you know, order and control. Whereas the other, the witches were kind of more like chaos and, and magic and empathy. And I think that um, dichotomy came out. Not only did you direct this one, but you wrote this one as well. Did you allow people to ad lib or were you very strict as far as these are the words I wrote? I always let them do whatever they want. <laughs> if that, I'm actually um, Christian and Gideon would rewrite a lot of their scenes with their dialogue. Same with Liz too. I was like, if it doesn't feel natural to you, if your character, you don't think your character would say that, then they shouldn't say that. You know, you know what they're like. And uh, we stuck to the script for the most part, but we did rewrite a lot of scenes before we shot them in terms of their dialogue to just make it seem like, more organic to what their characters were becoming. So yeah, I'm not precious with my writing <laughs> at all. Can you tell me about your DP? Cause the film looks fantastic. Nico. Yes. He's amazing. And he's, he was so meticulous with everything, you know, and every shot for us was intentional. You know, we tried to do longer takes and add movement because you know, if you're sitting down and watching something for an hour and a half, we want it to look pretty. That's a kind of a struggle with indie films is to prioritize that. But we really took our time and created something that's really pretty. I also like love coloring things, um, have them be more saturated, even though my films are darker in nature. I like to uh, make sure that they're very colorful because that's how I want to see the world. <laughs> well, I will tell you, it doesn't look like an indie film. It just the level of acting, the level of of the way that everything looks, the way that it sounds. Uh, I can definitely tell that you took a lot of care when it came to the sound design for it. Thank you. Yeah, I do sound design all my own stuff, and I'm pretty meticulous about it. What were some of your biggest challenges making the film? There are a lot of stunts in the film, <laughs> a lot of fire, uh, like water, drownings. <laughs> 
This is the first film that I've worked with that had um, stunts. And since I come from post-production, that's not something we ever dealt with. So that was a big learning curve for me. And obviously these are things that you want to do safely. And so you have to do them very slowly. Um, And so we had to change a lot of the coverage of some scenes because, you know, we have to keep everyone safe, but we still want to do this big stunt. So that was, I think, my biggest challenge and what I took away from the film. Um, I learned a lot about that, but I kind of got the bug for it. I want to do it more. They're fun. (laughs) When did you actually shoot this? We shot it in June of 2019, because it was originally going to premiere at South by Southwest in 2020, but, you know, the world shut down. So it's been um, on hold until now. Did you just have to put it on the shelf? Pretty much, yeah. The whole festival circuit shut down, which is so important for indie films. And so rather than, you know, rush it out at a time where bigger things were happening in the world, we just decided to, you know, wait for the right time, which is now. Well, how did the pandemic affect you? It's been pretty isolating, you know? I feel like uh, maybe one of the witches in my movie (laughs) cut off from society hiding out. Creatively, it's been very interesting. I've been doing a lot of writing, and I'm excited to now, you know, re-enter the industry with a lot of new ideas. But it does really put things into perspective, like what's important and what kind of relationships you want to you know, prioritize. And um, my family lives across the country. So I've been pretty much alone in Los Angeles for the entire time. So I've learned a lot about myself, which has been, you know, always nice. (laughs) Do you think now you're in a position where the next film will be a little easier to make now that you've got two features under your belt? I would hope so. That's the idea. (laughs) As filmmakers and artists, like we just live to make our next project. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping that I can make something again soon. Have you been able to see the film with an audience? I haven't, which is a really interesting um, kind of new experience because especially genre films, like the audience is such a big part of the viewing process. But at the same time, with everything being digital now, you can reach a much wider audience. As a filmmaker, like my only goal is to just entertain people The more people that can see my film and enjoy it, hopefully, um, the better. I'm going to miss hearing people screaming because there's a lot of points in Witch Hunt where you just go jump and gasp and not having that laugh afterwards with the rest of the theater. I I really miss watching people squirm. I always sit in the back so that I can see like if scares are working so that if, you know, if people are like slowly getting like more hunched over, but you know, I'll get to hopefully soon. (laughs) What kind of stuff have you been working on for the future? More creature features. I'm really into that. I'm a big folklore buff. So um, I've been creating a lot of new monsters and figuring out what kind of stories I want to tell in this kind of like new world landscape that we're going to be entering. Personally, I didn't watch a lot of horror during the pandemic because I, I the world was just so crazy, but I was able to write a lot of horror. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, now that we're coming out of it, we want to be more like entertained and and have a kind of diverse palette of what we want to watch. You get to unleash your monsters on more people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Are you at on social? Is there a good place to keep up with you in the film? I'm on Instagram. It's just my name, Elle Callahan, and I usually post on there. Next up, Paul Dude's Deadly Lunch Break. It's a comedy about the titular Paul Dude, that's D-O-O-D, who's played by Tom Meaton. He's a middle-aged man who lives with his mom and wants to try out for a show that's kind of similar to Britain's Got Talent or one of those. Unfortunately, things don't go as well as they should, and he's beset by petty bureaucrats, overzealous sushi shop owners, a lascivious priest and nun, and other nasty characters. It's a comedy mixed with a little bit of horror. Director and co-writer Nick Gillespie told me about the long journey for Paul Dude to come to the big screen. Nick, you have done a lot of jobs. I see you working in camera, DP work, just a whole bunch of stuff. How did you get your start? I 
picked up an old Panasonic M10 VHS camcorder when I was about 10 years old that a family friend had bought for a wedding. There was a tape in it and I pressed record and we were like kids playing and we made little films and I just fell in love with that and making pictures and I did it as much as I could. And then I suppose I, I made films and, and I started putting them into little festivals when I got a lot older. I got a job in uh, local television as a camera operator, camera assistant, and a camera trainee on some BBC sitcoms and dramas and, and worked my way up from that. But always, always, um, always at the same time, carried on shooting my own uh, short films, music videos and writing as much as possible and just kind of do, doing that, I guess. And, it, and it's... Um, yeah, don't know where it will go to, but it's. Uh, I feel like it's early days. <laughs> How did you finally work your way into directing? Made my short films. I'd done a bit of telly and some promos, and, I, and I'd always wanted to make a feature and and make as many more features. And I guess just writing, really. Writing, I sent a script to Finn, who produced this film, and he liked it. And Matthew White, who wrote Paulie's Daily Lunchbreak originally, sent me it in 2010. We were... We'd just done a couple of short films, which had done quite well at festivals and things like that. And we wanted to make a feature. So we kicked this around for years and years, really. And then, yeah, sort of 11 years ago, from start to, it's not, I don't it's not finished yet. The film's finished. I don't know what the life of it would be. But yeah, I, I just really love making stuff and working with like-minded people who enjoy making films. And that's what I like. That's what I like doing. So Paul Dude's Deadly Lunch Break, that is 10 years in the making. That's amazing. Yes, 10 years, I think. And Matt probably had some ideas about it before that. It's a long time, but I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of films that take uh, longer than that to get made. And, it, and it, so it has been there for quite a long time. And it's been one of those projects that, or scripts at least, where I've always just gone back to. And uh, Matt and I have got a bunch of feature scripts that we've been developing and and that one just it kept coming back. We were like, what about Paul D? Like, what would? And I think at the point when it was originally written, it was at a time when uh, talent shows in the UK were sort of they've always been there, but they were sort of um, they were reaching more mainstream primetime TV. And I think that that was something we 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 chose to tap into at that point. And and ten years later, it's still the case, really. So. It's a project that's, for us personally, that's kind of stood the test of time. How has the project changed uh, over these years? The original idea of Matt's was it was a school kid who was being bullied in high school when he stayed in a small town and everyone went off to have various jobs and whatever and carried on bullying him and eventually flipped one day. And that was more of a sort of horror film, I suppose. And we've seen that one quite a lot in Revenge Stories. And, and then we worked the talent show thing into it. Lots of details, really. The, the core sort of backbone of the story and structure, I think, had mainly mainly stayed. And it's always been a film about kind of grief and loss and um, finding amusing comedic moments in possibly some of the darker sides of, of what happens of life. I'm not talking about laughing at bad things or anything, but I think it, it does tread that kind of tightrope. So it's a lot about the development of finding the balance of that and, kind of making Paul three-dimensional and, and making sure that people would root for him, really, I suppose, when he goes to make decisions to do the things he does. Can you tell me a little bit about your cast? I mean, some of the, the faces in here are just fantastic. I was very happy to see people like Johnny Vegas, Catherine Parkinson, some very familiar faces to me. I was just tickled to see them. I mean, we're so lucky, really, with the cast that we got. And it, it really, I mean started by just initially approaching people that we knew because it's you know trying to be realistic and who you're going to get and even the people that we we got and people that we knew I thought they might still probably not going to want to necessarily do it but once we got a few people on board uh and we you know we had a script that we were all happy with I think that it more people kind of came to it and it grew and uh Johnny Vegas I'd, I'd he's a lovely chap and he's a very um He's got a lot of depth and he's a very talented actor and he's a stand-up comic and a, a very well-known face here. But I think uh, as an actor, he's absolutely fantastic. And he was one of the initial 2010 sort of actors that we knew at the time that uh, the part had been written for. It got developed, but 
And um, and then Tom Meaton as well, I, I'd worked with quite a bit in the past and he's got a real range and he's absolutely lovely, but there's a, on screen, there's a, there's a sort of danger to him as well. And he's a very good talent, talented um, character actor. So it was, it was, yeah, it was finding people that we knew. And then um, suddenly we were on set and I was surrounded by all of these famous places. And I thought, wow, this is real. Had you directed comedy before this? I worked on a lot of comedy shows and, and shot a lot of stuff as a DOP. And my short films have always had an element of comedy to them. Um, I can't sit here and tell you that I think my work's funny or that I think the film's funny. There's things that I found funny on set that other people didn't and, and vice versa. I'd worked a lot on it and I guess worked on a lot of taster tapes, I think, for comedians as much as enjoying working with comedic actors. And I suppose, um, again, I can't, I'm not an expert on comedy, but I can say that um, there's a difference between being funny with your mates down the pub there is to perhaps doing a stand-up show or something. I think it's, it's a whole different ball game. You do such a great job of balancing kind of horror elements, you know, the, the murders <laughs> or the, the fantasy murders uh, in the case of some, some scenes and then the, the uh, comedy, it just, you will tread that fine line very, very well. I guess it was about the balance and, and getting that right. And, I sort of, I mean, I actually reined some of the deaths in a little bit. And it's it's like any script, really. You can have like one-eighth of a page that sort of says a little bit of something that can become a two-week shoot. Or you can have like a big gory scene written on page. And then when you really like start imagine what that will actually look like, it can, there's a fine line. And I think that a lot of the gore in the film is done in a way that it's... Um, it is all quite heightened and it is all a bit larger than life. So that was the intention and my hope is that people will, some people will be shocked by it, but I would hope that some people will find that uh, darkly amusing as well. When did you actually shoot this? The film was shot in 2019 in autumn, in October and November in autumn, 2019. And then we, uh, we finished it. Yeah. Just before Christmas, had a little bit of time off and then we kind of started our edit which um, <clears throat> kind of got shut down and we were unable to continue in March when the UK went into lockdown. So we continued working remotely, which is a whole new, you know, for everyone, as much as just the world, you know, the feelings that were, were, we all had at that time of, of unease and uncertainty and then trying to find new ways of working and new ways of communicating. So it was a real challenge. And, um, you know, I love what I do. I feel very lucky to be able to do it. And it's, you know, it's hard work. But I'm not. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not saving lives. So I understand that you know the importance of that as well. And um, we we inadvertently made a period film because there's, there's actually a scene with a gravestone that says uh, 2020, and it's sort of set in autumn. So we we, we made an, a small inaccuracy there. But it's it's crazy, you know, how how much the world has changed and will continue to change, pandemic or no pandemic as a filmmaker, so you, you sort of have to do your best to adapt to it. And yeah, I mean, we could never have predicted what would happen. I don't think, but um, getting through it, cracking on. I am very curious how that post production during pandemic actually worked. I mean, obviously a lot of zoom meetings or, or FaceTime kind of thing, but how did that workflow go as far as doing all the audio and all the video and just all the editing and, and all the stuff that goes into post? Cause you also had a lot of effects in there too. Yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, it was all done remotely, all, all done over zoom and phone calls. We spent a lot of time on the phone talking to various HODs and things and um, working from home, just constantly working at home, being at home and keeping safe. I think, you know, there's no end of like people trying to suggest at times we all get together in a room and just, we were able to do it remotely and, and it, there's a way that works really. Um, and I actually went, I, I shot a film in August last year. I came out of lockdown and shot what I was told was the first feature film in the United Kingdom to go in its entirety, which was a film directed by Ben Wheatley called In the Earth. So that was, that was something that made, I was able to pay my rent basically and carry on. But a wonderful, wonderful experience. But um, like anything um, with COVID, there's a whole added layer. Yeah, I'm, I take it quite seriously. But there's, there's a worry, I suppose. There is, there is definitely a, 
sensibleness that needs to be adapted. Is South by Southwest the premiere of Paul Dude? It's the world premiere. So it's a very, very special thing to have our film playing there. And it's really great that, that there's an online festival that people can can enjoy films and uh, and carry on watching new films. Um, I hope we'll get back to cinema. I hope the theatres will open. I hope I can go to gigs again. I hope all that stuff will happen. But uh, I think it shows really that the, that the film industry and, and the exhibition of films is still possible. And I think... Um, as much as I'd love to be in a room with a lot of people that you know, some I might know, but mostly strangers, and, and have a nice time, the main thing is that people see the film. Really, that's it's, it's it'll have a life of its own. And I've always wanted to go to South by Southwest. I've, I've dreamt of it, uh, so ironically, can't this time. But I, I'm there in spirit, definitely. So you haven't seen this with an audience, and you haven't heard people laugh at the film necessarily. It's really strange this time. Yeah, we've not been able to have a cast and crew screening or anything like that. There's, um, I mean, a couple of people I'm, you know, that have seen it and people working on the film. So that's um, they've all been very supportive. But you don't, you know, of course, you don't get a clear idea of what people actually make of the film until to an audience see it, until a public audience see it. So yeah, I'm very nervous about that. But also, genuinely, it's it's great that. That a festival festival will take us, will take us on and will show it. And I hope that the film, you know, I think the film is is full of colour and it's fun. It's dark at times, but I think in everything that's happened, I hope people will find this film and they will find some fun with it. And there's a lot of heart there, and I think I hope people will not immediately relate to it and say, "Oh, I remember when I went and did that." But you know, find something that that they can get onto that they, they find entertaining. Well, you treat Paul Dude so lovingly. You could easily make him the butt of the joke, but I don't think that you ever really do that. No, he's he's not the butt of the joke. He really is. He's a kind of um, he's an underdog, and he is a victim of circumstance. And that he's he's got a dream. You know, he lives a fairly sheltered existence, for want of a better term. He's his he's his mum's carer. He earns a living. He works part time in this kind of uh, bric-a-brac second-hand type shop, and uh, and and he's a very sweet individual who loves singing and dancing. You know, he he just likes that, and uh, and people take advantage of him and people bully him, and and I think that's wrong, and I think that's where I hope you know that's where I think that's where I got behind the character definitely, so that. Um, you know, when he goes through and try, he goes and does these things or tries to do these things. It doesn't go particularly well for him. But I hope that people are on side with him for that. Nick Gillespie, thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. No, thank you, Mike. It's been really, really good questions. Thank you. Going from comedy with a bit of horror to a full-out horror film off-season, that's all one word, is from director Mickey Keating of Darling fame. I don't want to say too much about it other than it's a nightmarish vision of an off-season town where our main character, Marie Aldrich, who's played by Jocelyn Donahue of The Frontier, which we talked about way back in 2016, is beset by potentially supernatural forces. Let's go ahead and hear from writer-director Mickey Keating. Can you tell me how you became interested in being a filmmaker? I've wanted to make movies since as long as I can remember. And before I knew how to make movies, I wanted to be Indiana Jones or, you know, Han Solo. And so it was kind of a natural, there was never another option. And so when I was like eight or nine, I found the old family video camera. From there, it was, you know, nonstop ever since. So I kind of just see this as one long ongoing (laughs) path. (laughs) Did you end up going to school for film or did you just jump right in? Uh, I did. I went to Boston University and I, I studied film there and English. So it was it was cool. It was like a best of both worlds kind of thing. Can you tell me about some of your early films, what they were like? And were you always interested in horror as a genre or have you tried other things? I've tried, dabbled in everything, you know. Growing up, you know, I, I was, you know, when Lord of the Rings came out, immediately I was like, well, I want to make Lord of the Rings. Uh, but horror has always been my focus, genre films, crime movies, like, like that's always been my real obsession. I'm a huge cinephile in general, so I love 
everything, you know, from the dumbest comedy to, uh, you know, uh, to anything really. I've always been kind of anchored in like movies that are, are lean gravitate towards the darkness, I suppose, even though I'm a very happy person. <laughs> One of the the films that I've seen of yours, Carnage Park, I like that there is that mixture of crime and horror inside of that. It's it just I I love cross genre stuff like that. Oh, cool! Yes, no, I I mean I absolutely. If I'm not my I think my next movie that I'm going to do is a straight crime movie. So I'm very you know I love com- combining those genres, and I you know obviously Scorpion Joe and Carnage Park was you know the all the all American uh, hero you love to hate. <laughs> Is Carnage Park, is that an homage to Punishment Park? Title-wise, yeah, for sure. And and I guess subject matter, you know, obviously it doesn't have any of, like, the Peter Watkins uh, documentary, you know, pseudo-documentary stuff. But uh, the idea of, of people traversing the desert, you know, being hunted by military folk is, is obviously, yeah, a, a, a huge inspiration. And I love Punishment Park. Where did the idea for off-season come from? The two anchor points that I can definitely say are... Um, William Faulkner's short story, A Rose for Emily, and then uh, Shirley Jackson's story, The Summer People. Like that kind of war, war, those were the jumping off point um, in terms of like literature or cinema that I really was inspired by when writing this. And, you know, and I, but then also simultaneously, I grew up in Florida. I had been to these little towns that like were completely empty that used to be these tourist hubs. And so it really was something that had been in my brain you know, in my psyche for, for years and years and years before, before I finally committed, I was like, this is going to be the next movie and I'm going to film in Florida and we'll see what happens. <laughs> it seems like you did a lot of night shooting for that. Yeah. Uh, and we shot a lot, you know, we designed the movie. I drew the whole film out on storyboards uh, before and we designed the movie for night and magic hour as much as we could. So yeah, it was very, it was, you know, there was this element, this mathematic element that uh that went into shooting this one which was which was great shooting in florida you know presents all different kind of difficulties when it comes to weather and whatnot even having to shoot near the water i was like wow that's got to be a challenge but it was glorious it looks amazing and it was really magical to film but you know we endured everything from from high winds to say you know to bugs to <laughs> to endless bugs let's be let's be real about it, to the, the little sand gnats and then you know it sometimes it would rain sometimes it wouldn't we got really lucky with like the overcast look of the movie fortunately but yeah it was you know in in LA it's like every single day is exactly the same to an extent unless you get a little rain but uh i i think the whole crew coming from los angeles it was a learning experience for everybody. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your crew? I mean, especially your DP. Like I said, it looks gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, I worked with Mac. Uh, he's my cinematographer. This was our sixth film together. And we decided from a very early phase that we wanted to film with animor- with these old anamorphic lenses. We had the luxury of being able to go and scout this movie twice before we filmed uh, because the production company financed that. And so we were really able to plan out and map things out in a more detailed fashion than just showing up and being like, oh, I hope this works out. But yeah, I mean, Mac, I can't sing his praises enough. And, and his his team, Edgar the Gaffer and David, his first AC, we've worked on four or five movies together at this point. So it really is a very close knit family. When did you actually shoot this thing and how has the pandemic affected you, if at all? We shot it in January and February, 2020. <laughs> and wow. literally like a couple weeks after we wrapped the, the whole country ground to a halt. Val, my editor and I, we lived together. And so there was this element, we take a, a while on our movies, you know, we usually end up, movies they're like 10 week deadline then we have to see the director's cut whatever you know but this movie we were like well the future's uncertain we're it's kind of a race to nowhere so let's take as much time as we want to on the film let's screen it let's see if we if we you know we have to the one difference is you know we like to have people sit down with us and watch it and feel it in the room you know because you can get very quickly get you know where places aren't working and the learning experience was we couldn't do that we had to show it on links you know and hope that we could also feel the cringiness of, of, of early edits. But it was really fortunate because we were able to take as much time as we wanted. And then when we found out we got into South by Southwest, we were like, oh, no. And we had to race to finish everything else. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of your biggest challenges with this other than the pandemic? 
it was a, extremely for all of the factors that came, it, you know, maybe it was because I planned the movie and I had the movie so long in my head before we shot that we were able to take most things in stride. The one shocking thing that happened that has never happened to me on far smaller movies was we were about three months into the edit and all of a sudden this brand new beautiful hard drive that we were using as our master drive just died at three in the morning as I was working on sound. And I do a lot of my own sound design and we all of a sudden just like Val came in. It was a three in the morning. She pulled everything from, from the drive onto the desktop of the computer. (laughs) And we waited in like horrible anticipation because if that, had completely wiped clean, uh, I would have lost like two months of sound work. <laughs> oh. but, but it all worked out. Nothing happened. But it was just ironic that my biggest film had some kind of magical hard drive fiasco that uh, that fortunately ended up okay. But it was very, very scary. It was uh, at least two sleepless nights. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even imagine that. Just Wow. That's one that I can feel in my soul. Yeah, you, you, you know, the crazy thing was I was watching because all I do is watch movies when I'm not working on the movie or uh, on a film. And I was watching Keanu Reeves side by side documentary and they were interviewing somebody about digital and how the problem with digital is all of a sudden the hard drive can just go tick, tick, tick and wipe clean. And I was like, yeah, right. That never happens. A week later, that's the exact thing that happened to us. <laughs> I have to tell you that the sound design is gorgeous. I watched it with headphones on and it just was amazing. Cool. Great. Yes. Thank you. I, um, you know, I always lay the base layers and then I use my same collaborator from all of my films, Sean Duffy. And he really, you know, I, I like to say it's like, I draw the sketches. He makes it a painting. And, um, he really put a lot of work into that. And he's worked with, you know, over the years, like he's worked with, uh, with Joe Begas and he's worked with a whole bunch of other filmmakers. So, uh, I feel very fortunate. I always say it's like when my collaborators keep working, they just keep getting better and better. And then I benefit. <laughs> what was it like working with uh, Melora Walters? I mean, it was a dream. It was an absolute, uh, you know, I never thought in a million years that she would do the movie because she's been in so many of my favorite movies. I think she's an absolutely astounding actor. And I begged her, you know, I met with her once. I, she, you know, I, I, we talked about it. We talked a lot about Faulkner and I basically was like, please, you know, I don't, <laughs> there's nobody else I want to cast in this movie, please. And she did it and she was lovely. And, you know, I, she really brought it to, especially the flashback sequence. It was her idea. She's like, I need to be the wicked mother, you know, so everyone feels horrible for, for Jocelyn's character when she's trapped. She came here, you know, and she's trapped here now. And I'm just like this horrible, wicked mother. And I was like, that's brilliant. Let's do that. And so it was really, really a fruitful collaboration. Some of the close-ups in the movie, they're shot so lovingly. And it just looks so good to see these folks' faces on screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cassavetti says it the best. You know, it's like the greatest special effect is the close-up of an actor's face. So, you know, <laughs> why not? When you're in that post-production phase and you have to send out the links, are you getting, how are you getting your feedback on that stuff? Because you're not able to sit in a room or sit with an audience and see this. I'm very lucky to know a lot of really great filmmakers who I trust. So we would show them the movie and then I'd get on the phone and we'd discuss or, you know, I showed, you know, obviously like someone like Mary Heron is a huge hero of mine and she was so sweet to watch the movie and send me, you know, all of her thoughts, very helpful thoughts, as elegantly written as they could ever, you know, as, as, as any thoughts could ever be. And, and I, and Larry Fessenden is another person and uh, filmmaker JT Petty. So, you know, you get on the phone and you kind of discuss it and it's, it, it, you know, you definitely, you definitely can't, don't feel it so much as when you're watching it, but you definitely do get the sense. I, I was, a, I was a lot more worried about the process, but it actually turned out to be not, you know, not hugely detrimental to our creative, uh, to our creative endeavors, fortunately. Did the movie change a lot during that post-prod period? You know, it's, it's funny. It's a movie like Carnage Park. We did a lot with the structure after the fact. This one was so designed in pre-planning that there wasn't a tr- an incredible amount of, of dramatic changes. But you start, you get the sense always with first cuts. It's like where something goes on too long, where something could be done, you know, a little bit better or more creatively. And so it really was helpful to be able to show something that was 
desire because if someone said like wow the the second half of this movie really doesn't work it would have been a huge problem because it was very designed you know very specifically structured and designed so unfortunately that didn't happen (laughs) well i'm glad you brought that up because it did feel like the movie does take a turn halfway through and i was kind of delighted by that i really didn't expect that it would suddenly shift like that for me yeah yeah great that's um that's great yeah you know i always i get a thrill when they're you know where you're watching a movie you're like where the hell is this movie going and it goes somewhere completely you don't expect and you know and the effort really was to it's like this poor character is just spiraling deeper and deeper into this nightmare and this sort of it was really you know a fun experience but also you know something i was very cautious of of creating you know, when you create nightmare logic or nightmare scenarios, you have to think it out and design it. Otherwise, you can't just lean on the back wall. You know, it's it's a dream. She's crazy because then the audience will riot. Right. <laughs> you know? So so it really was that kind of uh, effort to keep everybody guessing, but to also not throw too many wrenches in, in the, the dreamlike structure or take too much advantage of the dreamlike structure. I didn't think it was a remake of Carnival of Souls, but I was feeling that same kind of uneasiness while I was watching it. And then when you made that shift, I was like, oh, he's going in a different way than I ever thought this would go. Cool. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, and, and I think that those movies and, you know, something like The Twilight Zone or something like uh, the Faulkner story that I mentioned, you know, like those are all things that like you try to, you know, because I feel like audiences are savvy now. Right. And, and, and I want to be able to keep them. From, um, from looking at their phones while they're watching my movie. And the way to do that is to keep throwing, you know, left-hand turns at them as much as you can. Well, yeah, it's got to be really difficult with this being an online festival that you have to worry about people looking at their phones, where when they're engaged in a the theater, there's much less of that. Sure. You know, and but I think alternatively, you know, I'm my my generation and the generation coming up behind me, you know, we're used to having our movies. You know, the reality of it is, is like, is my movies have gotten theatrical releases, but by and large, they're mostly found on these streaming sites, you know, like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Um, and so there is a kind of a natural acceptance of being like, I hope one day the movie gets seen in the theaters, but premiering this way for South by isn't the complete brave new world that it might be if I was used to the complete theatrical release and not the day and date experience, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. And yeah, I think that's really, well, especially in this environment, that's just the way that it's going to be. And in five years, who knows what it'll be like? Yeah, well, I'm I'm optimistic. I really hope that, you know, because there's one side uh, saying, oh, the pandemic has killed theaters. But I think that once this is under control and the vaccinations are available, you know, to everybody. Uh, I think that the theaters are going to come roaring back because the reality is, is people are going to want to get out of their houses. You know, people are going to want to go do stuff on Friday and Saturday nights. And so I, I feel very hopeful that the theaters will survive and that hopefully off season will get a chance to play that way. During this time, have you been fully invested in off season? Have you been able to work on pre-prod for your next film? We worked on off season. Uh, for boy, I mean, for months and months and months. And then I went to Chicago and I, I shot a little movie with Joe, with Swanberg again. You know, it was, it was completely, you know, under the, the context of everyone lives in a mask for a month. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was a really kind of wild experience to learn how to film a movie again, you know, under these brand new situations. But then when I came back, the minute I came back, we found out we were in South by. So like that movie, I, we ha- aren't even finished assembling yet. So now I get to dive back in, which is a, a nice thing to have really, because releasing a film is it's stressful, you know, and, and you're shoving the baby out of the, out of the nest and we'll see if it flies or not. So it's nice to have something to, to, to take that stress away. Mr. Kidding, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work online? I have an Instagram page that I update sometimes, but I'm not really that uh, present, unfortunately. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, interviews like this are are the best opportunity, I think. Good luck at South by Southwest. I hope that a lot of people get to see this. And I'm very curious where it goes from here, because I hope a lot of people see off season. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
Last but not least on this episode is a documentary about the case of Reality Winner. I had forgotten about Miss Winner's case way back in 2016, 2017. She leaked a document about foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election. You know, the election where one of the candidates was openly begging Russian hackers to hack their opponent's email. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Rather than creating a lunatic two-hour quote-unquote documentary, Ms. Winter thought she would not be found out. But the organization she leaked the document to pretty much raised a big old red flag to the government, which promptly arrested her. She remains locked up to this day. I spoke to Sonia Kennebec about the making of The United States versus Reality Winner and how important it is to tell this story. How did you get involved with filmmaking and especially into documentaries? I actually had a bit of an unusual route into documentary festival films, I think. I never went to film school. I've never even taken a filmmaking class. I studied um, uh, international politics, international affairs politics with um, some focus on security policy. I always wanted to be a journalist. So I actually, you know, identify very strongly as being an investigative journalist and I focused on national security issues. So I actually come real, really from the content of my films. And then I, you know, I worked in broadcast and I did investigative pieces. And, um, and when I, you know, found my, uh, you know, the, my first subject for uh, my first feature film, National Bird, which is about the U.S. drone war, who is a drone program whistleblower. You know, she she's such, you know, like a fascinating, you know, person and character. And I, I, I thought that, you know, this, this has to be a full film. You know, I didn't want to be constrained by sort of the broadcast formats. And, and yeah, and so I, I just really, you know, without really knowing too much about film, I, I made that first, um, first feature, you know, it, it ran very well in festivals and I just really got hooked to the medium, you know, the beauty of the layers of, of film and storytelling, the, 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 the educational value when you do a social justice documentary, you know, just that, and, and just the power of reaching people, you know, and like so viscerally through, through film is, is so, so beautiful. How do you decide what you're going to cover? How do you find your subjects? You know, because it takes so long to produce an independent documentary film, you know, I like three years, um, you know, full-time work, um, usually at the, at the minimum, you know, from, the idea to to the release in particular for the types of films that I do, which are highly investigative. You know, all of my films are are based on original research and, um, and really, yeah, very research intensive. You know, I I sometimes say like, what you see in the film is like the tip of the iceberg. Like what, what is underneath it is the work that, you know, the, the, you know, reading thousands and thousands of pages, you know, court, court papers and, you know, and talking to many more people who actually, um, than who actually appear in the film. Um, but in order to embark on such a journey and dedicate, you know, so many years of my life to a subject, it really has to interest me personally. And I'm really like, honestly, very interested in, in, in national security um, issues and stories. So all of my films have been, you know, in, in this kind of subject matter. The first film was about the U.S. drone war. Um, the second one, you know, is about um, a very unique story. Um, Matt DeHart um, is, is his name, you know, Enemies of the State is, is the film, which is kind of, you know, about in large, it's about a, a, a case of a um, of what his parents say is a hacktivist and WikiLeaks courier. And then Reality Winners case really, yeah, that, that to, to my production partner and I really stood out as a story that had to be told. It really, you know, the, the fact that this young whistleblower released a document about foreign election interference and then, you know, gets charged with, you know, under, you know, the egregious espionage act and, 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 you know, while, and she's in jail, the, you know, from the day that she, you know, they, they interviewed and interrogated her, the FBI, and she was arrested facing 10 years in prison. That to us was like, it, it, it is such a historical case. 
and and we really we, we thought like you know, no matter you know what other films we're working on, we have to document this case. It is of such a value, you know, for our democracy, and people have to know you know reality winner story. When I first saw the name of the documentary, I had forgotten about Reality Winner, the person, and I thought you were going for a reality TV contestant. So I was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, no, it is, the reality TV contestants are not my my type of films. Yeah, it's it might be you know important for people who have not been following her case that you know to know that this is you know her actual name, um, Reality Winner. And, uh, you know, when, when the story first broke, a lot of people thought this was, you know, a code name or, or you know, it had like a different meaning. But Reality Winner is, is a person. She's currently in prison, you know, right now still for disclosing one document about foreign election interference. She has had a very, very difficult time in prison. You know, like we, we're talking to her family and they, are, they have a clemency um, petition going for her. And it's really the way that she has been treated is, you know, disproportionate, you know, compared to many, many other, other cases of mishandling, you know, classified information, disclosing information um, to the press, government information. It's been arbitrary, you know, the way... The, the government has been, you know, like, yeah, prosecuting um, whistleblowers. How was Reality Winner's family when you approached them? You know, my production partner and I um, heard about, you know, Reality Winner's case, you know, on, on the news. And we immediately paid attention because national security whistleblowers are extremely rare in society because the stakes are so high, you know, and, and on the other hand, you know, national security whistleblowers over the past, you know, two decades since 9-11 have disclosed some of the most important, you know, revelations about government misconduct, you know, government you know, torture, and mass data collection, surveillance, um, drone warfare, and now, you know, foreign election interference. But they are, you know, treated so harshly. And so when, you know, her case became public, we immediately, you know, dis discussed it. And then my production partner, um, Ines Hofmann-Kenna, like, said to me, you know, Sonia, you should actually fly out, you know, and, and, and to one of her pretrial hearings. So I, I flew out first without a camera and, you know, just to be a witness. And I was quite surprised how few uh, national journalists um, were, were covering, you know, this important case. And, and I met, you know, um, reality winner's mother, Billy Winner Davis, and, you know, talked to her about um, my previous work um, on drones and drone whistleblowers. And it turns out that reality winner actually, um, you know, was in the military as well and worked um, with drones. So her, her family watched um, my previous film and, and they just felt it explained so much about the daughter. You know, they, they really identified with, you know, the lead protagonist in, in, in National Bird. So after that, the access was, you know, quite immediate and, and we really got a lot of behind the scenes access. One of the most interesting people that's in the documentary for me is Edward Snowden. And I'm very curious how you made that connection with him as well. It was very important to us to, you know, speak to to other whistleblowers who've been through the same pressure and being charged, you know, under the Espionage Act for espionage. You know, Edward Snowden, of course, you know, still being in exile in Russia is, you know, facing like, yeah, it's, you know, a terrible situation, you know, every day himself, you know, where he can't, you know, return to his own country. Um, so we reached out um, to, through his attorneys, we, we have a lot of contacts in common, you know, I've covered national security for quite a long time. It really took a while. He's very selective. It's known as very selective and cautious about, you know, who he gives interviews to and, you know, you know, what type of, you know, talks he participates in. But yeah, eventually, you know, we, we got access and it was an incredible interview. I, I think he feels very personally, you know, like emotional about um, reality winner's case. And he, it, he felt it was very important for him to, to speak out for her. So did you actually have to go to Russia to shoot him? Yeah, my, my director of photography and I, um, we went to Russia um, to interview Edward Snowden and everything had to be like perfectly, you know, like um, sort of choreographed and organized. And I have to say it, it felt incredible to, to meet a, 
a person, a whistleblower who has made such a difference, you know, for our, our society and informing us about, you know, what we now take, you know, as, as granted that we know that, you know, how much data is being collected and used. And I actually see a very strong connection to, to my reality winner film um, in, in, in the sense that, um, you know, Edward Snowden disclosed this, you know, mass data collection. And what we see in Reality Winner's case is how the government was using all this information that is available to build a case against this young whistleblower. And, you know, using all like text messages um, between her and her sister, like very, very private sort of joking, you know, like messages between sisters to build this case against her or even diary entries. They, they took excerpts from diary entries and, um, you know, and try to, you know, like make a case, you know, against her and, um, you know, like about her character. So it's, it's very concerning. Not to sound trite, but it sounded very, very 1984 for me. Yes, and it like doesn't immediately, you know, make you feel, yeah, yeah, kind of cautious, you know, about what, what you, you know, say to to friends or your family, you know, like in very intimate, personal manners, you know, this, this, like, you know, all this information. We should, especially at a time like now, you know, during a pandemic, where we can meet in person. So, you know, digital communication is becoming much, much more important, and we share such personal information with our family. We should, you know, privacy matters. So, I really hope that people you know, also are educated about this in, in our film. And, and in fact, like I, what I really hope is that they don't take the approach of, you know, censoring themselves, but actually sort of push for privacy protection and changes. Cause we don't want to live in a world where we can't, you know, share our most private thoughts with our own family. You know, we don't want that. We want, we need privacy protection. We need safeguards. We need constitutional protections that are enforced so we can, you know, so we can have a, you know, a, a functioning democracy. How many films do you have in the hopper at one time? How many films are you working on at the same time? With United States versus Reality Winner, I, I basically almost parallel was working on, on two feature films. You know, I was working on Enemies of the State at, at the same time. That was very challenging, you know, to, to be honest. You know, we, we, we are a truly independent film team. So, you know, every dollar we spend, we have to raise the money for. And especially during the pandemic, it's been extremely challenging for independent artists, you know, to raise money to, you know, to do this type of, you know, research intensive work. I have more ideas <laughs> than I, I can make. I, I, I constantly, you know, I, I see so many stories that I think have to be told. I wish I had, you know, more time and like, to be honest, also a lot more, 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 more money, you know, to, you know, to, to maybe, you know, work with other people and getting these, these stories out that I think are so important. It's, yeah, it, it's certainly, I think it's, you know, to work um, as such a small crew on, on, on two independent features at the same time, that's like stretching it. Um, but I, I have like probably around, three, four ideas in, in, you know, pretty advanced development. So I, I, I really have to like make a decision um, on what to really focus my, my time next. You mean people aren't out there just throwing money at documentary filmmakers? No. <laughs> and please, if any of your listeners <laughs> want to, you know, donate to our, you know, important journalistic social justice work. They should come to me. I'm on social media <laughs> and when, you know, we have a website, codebreakerfilms.com. Independent documentary film is very unsustainable. Like some of the most important reporting has come out of, you know, from independent documentary films, but people really don't, don't realize how challenging it is to make a living and fund these films and filmmaking is it is expensive, even, you know, like we worked on, you know, what what is like kind of, you know, it's a shoestring budget, but it's like, if you want to make a certain type of quality films, um, you know, you, you, you have to do, you know, professional post-production, you know, you need certain cameras. It's a very challenging um, industry. And yeah, if you have, like, I, I do think, you know, 
documentary films are, are bringing out some of the most important information. I have so many friends who, who do like amazing social justice documentary work and everyone is, is honestly quite, you know, struggling. You brought up the pandemic and I'm curious, how did that affect the making of this film for you? As a film team, we were quite fortunate because most of the filming had concluded prior to the pandemic. We had worked, you know, very hard on two um, different independent feature films, and we we were just filming a lot in the years um, prior to the pandemic. So we could really use the time to organize the materials and continue fundraising and and you know go into editing and so on and you know to really make you know such a film that you know is, is, you know goes into the these type of festivals and has a life you know way beyond the festivals um you know it, it takes a lot of time to think through and plan and you know structure and like and the research and the fact checking which um you know I really focus a lot of of time on you know these are these are films that are, you know, all based on original research. And, and that is, you know, to be honest, like one of the most time consuming things in my work. I remembered Reality Winner once I started watching the documentary, especially when the Seth Meyers clip came up. I was like, okay, it all clicked into place. It took me back to such a horrible time of four or five years ago, stuff that I think I've tried to push out of my brain. So having this film to remind me of when Comey was fired, when the reality winner's story broke, the reaction of people to it. I think a lot of us have tried to induce ourselves into amnesia for the last four or five years. I I know exactly um, what you mean, especially because there's like so much going on now, you know, in the the news cycles. And there was like the reporting on you know, the, the Trump administration. And it, it was like just one scandal after another, right? And and then, of course, we are in an in information age where things, you know, come from all kinds of different directions and either, you know, the new information is taking over. So I actually really also saw this film as an opportunity to take a step back and really reflect on that time period. And, you know, and yes, my production partner and I were always like, discussing how this film is, you know, maybe one of the first films that really reflects on, you know, one of the, you know, negative legacies of the Trump administration, which was really going down harshly against, you know, whistleblowers and information and the press and the media going down against, you know, information about foreign election interference. And, and it, yeah, and it was really important um, for me to, bring these news clips and these like important, you know, speeches and so on into, into the film for, you know, to tell people like, not just remind them of what happened, but also, you know, maybe inspire people to take a stand and make sure this is not going to happen again. And we also have to reverse course on some of the things like, you know, imprisoning a whistleblower who disclosed information about foreign election interference. That's what our democracy is based on, right? If we don't have fair, you know, safe, secure elections, you know, like, like how can we have, you know, a strong democracy? And, and same with, you know, a, a free press and transparency. You know, how are we going to keep our government in check if there's no way to report on government misconduct safely without endangering whistleblowers like this these are issues they're not just affecting journalists and impacting us it's about you know all the citizens and in in this country don't you want to have you know information about your country and your government do you already have your next project in mind I have always multiple projects sort of I'm thinking about at night, you know, go on in my head. I sometimes I get up at night and like write ideas down or think through scenes. I I have a few fiction film projects in mind. Um, One of them is actually based on a true story and it's actually quite kind of falls into the, the, the scope of my work. So I'm very, very, you know, interested and intrigued by it. I'm really interested sort of in, in all forms of films, and I would love to explore um, the fiction landscape as a director. Sonia Kennebec, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. 
Thank you. And thanks like also for your interest in, 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 you know, my, my filmmaking is like really like, I, I always have the feeling with, you know, the types of films that I make because they, they involve such, you know, timely current affairs subjects, you know, and that of course should be at the, at the center of it. You know, that's why I make, make these films, but it's also nice, you know, to, to have an opportunity to talk about the craft itself. Cause my, my, you know, my team, I have, you know, I think I have like a fantastic cinematographer, Torsten Lapis, like he, he captures like in, in, in a documentary, you know, space where it's so quick, you know, you can't just tell people to do things like he has such an eye for just beautiful, meaningful images, you know, and it's been an, like, I've worked with him on all my films. So Torsten, Torsten Lapis is really like such an artist. And then my editor, like, I don't know if you've seen, you know, National Bird or Enemies of the State, but they all have very, I work with the same crew team, but they all have very different styles. And so for Reality Winner, United States versus Reality Winner, my editor, Maxine Goedeke, she, um, she developed this, this like collage style that, you know, she mapped out, you know, with like all these like, you know, social media tweets and, um, uh, social media posts, but also reality winners artwork where we really wanted to get across her character, you know, because she's an absent character. It's so difficult to make a film about an absent character. And so we wanted her to be at the center of this. So we, we went through, you know, of course the voice interviews with her, but also her artwork, her like drawings, you know, she's a great artist, like her diary entries and her sort of like style a little bit to get her personality across. The documentary had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. So thank you so much for making it. Thank you. This is really meaningful. Like, yeah, it's like, thanks for reporting on it. You know, as, as you said, it's, and, and thanks for asking about it too. That this industry is like, it's, it's very challenging, you know, if you're not like an independently wealthy person. So I, I do appreciate your interest and your questions. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'll be back again tomorrow with another bunch of reviews and interviews from South by Southwest 2021. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.